You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits. And a huge thanks to our title sponsor, B Pro Kennels. Handcrafted and American-made, built here in the USA, B Pro Kennels is bringing you a premium-built dog box unlike anything you've seen before. Built from a full tube frame and aluminum powder-coated shell, built-in lockable storage, and oh, how about those dog collars? Did you forget to charge them? Well, no worries. B Pro has you covered with their built-in solar panel and battery bank to take care of all your charging needs while out on the road chasing birds this fall. This is a full-on custom setup that won't disappoint. Check them out at bprokennels.com. Use promo code ROOKIE10 to save 10% off your order with B Pro Kennels. Also a special thanks to our sponsors over at Final Rise and Trinity Bertans. All good things start with a solid foundation. At Final Rise, all three of their premium Upland vests are built around the foundational waist belt to provide you with all day comfort and endless customization. With a secure waist belt, this is the vest that you can load down with birds and walk all day. Final Rise is creating high functioning Upland gear that delivers comfort, balance, and a lifetime of memories. Check them out at finalrise.com. Also check out their brand new gun case, takedown case, the long gun case, and also grab yourself a pair of their premium Upland gloves. Trinity Bretons is home of the Epignol Breton, also known as the French Brittany. All Trinity Breton dogs are from champion bloodlines that are field tested and family approved. For over 33 years, Trinity Bretons has worked to offer you the best bred Epignol Breton in the country for the field trialer and foot hunter alike. Trinity Bretons offers puppies, the Trinity Upland Academy with George Hickox, started dogs, stud services, and a whole lot more. Reach out to Jeff or Josh from Trinity Bretons and check them out at trinitybretons.com. Hey, what's going on, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Upland Rookie Podcast. I am your host, Will Larson, and it is so good to be back with you guys again. Uh, This is episode 54, and we are chatting with Ronnie and Suzanne Smith of Smith Kennels. Now, if you think you recognize the name... Uh, Well, I'm sure there's a lot of Smiths out there, but uh, in the world of bird dogs and upland hunting, you may have heard of the Smith Method. And uh, yes, we are talking with Ronnie and Suzanne of of the Smith family. So Delmar Smith, Rick Smith, Ronnie Smith, don't ask me the relationship between everyone because I'm probably going to get it wrong. Um, They are all connected. They're all related. They're a one big family. And so I think there's an uncle and a brother and Delmar was Rick's. No, uncle maybe? I'm not sure. But anyways, uh, Ronnie and Suzanne, um, they are running their own kennel, uh, Smith Kennels, in Oklahoma. And we get to chat with them uh, and learn a whole lot more about uh, training. We uh, uh, answer a bunch of listeners' questions. So questions that you all have written in. Uh, some of the Patreon community wrote in uh, some specific questions for the Smiths. And so we get into those and unpack uh, more about training and development of bird dogs. Um, You guys know I love uh, talking bird dog development, especially puppies. Um, We get into that quite a bit in this episode and a whole lot more. Um, Talk about the Smith 
family history, um, you know, what Ronnie and Suzanne are up to and some of the training uh, that they're doing. So I, I think it's going to be a really good one. I had a ton of fun uh, chatting with them. Um, we recorded this one a while back and uh, had a couple um, signal issues with our, our internet feed. So a couple parts in it um, get a little gargly, I would say. And uh, so apologize for maybe not the absolute best quality, but um, working on, uh, on doing some updates and upgrades to uh, my recording system. So hopefully um, that won't happen in the future. So and the one thing I also wanted to mention regarding the Smith method. Now, I have had the most experience with the Smith method, and it's it's been the one that has made sense for me, for the for the trainer, for the handler of my dogs that I have, my personal dogs. Um, it's been the first one that maybe I had that uh, aha moment that I saw the pieces of the puzzle, I saw all the ideas, I asked questions, I, I did research on other methods. It's the first one that made sense for me. Will Larson. And that is not to say it's going to be the one that makes sense to Joe down the street or <laughs> whoever it might be. There are so many good trainers out there, good uh, training plans and methods and, and people who are doing this professionally, um, amateurs, whoever it is that have their own um, uh, skill set and method of training a dog. There's more than one way to skin a cat is you've heard the saying go. And so I, I bring this up to say, um, there's not a one size fits all. Um, every person's dog is going to be different. Every dog that a person has is going to be different. And the handler, it, we're all wired so uniquely. And, um, so, so for me, this method has made so much sense to me. I, I've gotten to see the pieces of the puzzle, see the importance of why you do step one, two, three, four, and, and seeing the results now from that. And so, again, I, I dove in uh, for the last several years. I looked at Hickok's method and, and some other ones out there. And, again, it just it, it clicked. And for, for you listening, you might be on the Hickox method, method, or you might be following Mo Lindley, or you might be following a, a hybrid plan. There's, there's so many ones out there. Perfection Kennels. I've, I've heard some great things about Perfection Kennels. Uh, Standing Stone Kennels, obviously. They, they do some great stuff on YouTube. And, um, you know, everyone's going to be different with, their, with your own dog. And so I encourage you as a listener, you know, when, when you hear this um, conversation here with the Smiths, um, Again, you're, you may learn something that you, you didn't think of before. I encourage us to listen with an open mind because you may have your thing. You may have, hey, this is my, my plan. But um, never stop doing your research. Never stop learning. Never stop asking questions. I think, that, I think that's, a, um, that's a really good thing in life just in general <laughs> is, is uh, do, take your time and uh, lean into things you don't understand. Lean into... Um, you know, harder, harder concepts that you might learn something from. And I, I, I'm going to do that myself. I mean, I, I might not always do the Smith method. It, it's, I've seen great results on my own personal, uh, my two personal dogs I, I've used this with. Um, but Hey, who knows? Maybe the next dog, I might try something different that, um, that I haven't tried yet. Again, I did some research in the beginning, you know, read, read some books, videos, um, ask questions to, to people I, I know and trust. And again, this was just the first one that has made sense to me. So it's going to be different for everyone. Um, and so just, just keep that in mind as you are listening to this episode and all, all episodes in the future. Um, I get to have some uh, the chance to interview some, some great, great guests um, who are professionals in this field and have been doing this a long time. Um, I appreciate each and every one of them and respect their, um, their, their philosophies because they've, they've seen 
lots and lots of dogs. I've only seen a handful. <laughs> I mean, in comparison to some pro trainers out there, I've seen a small, small fraction. And so do um, what makes sense to you. Do your own research and uh, and figure out what's going to be the, the best plan for you and your dog. And so, and the last thing I'll say is the, the again, I'm using air quotes, the method I'm using, it's not exactly the Smith method. It's, it's I would say probably 85, maybe 90% the Smith method. And some of it's a, a little bit of a hybrid. Um, some of my mentors, a couple things of mine that I've seen that I did differently now between win and gauge. And so, um, anyways, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, I just thought it was worth mentioning, um, here before we dive into this conversation. So, uh, last thing, uh, just a couple quick announcements for the show. Um, Patreon supporters. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for stepping up this last month. Um, you know we have an awesome giveaway happening over at patreon.com for all Patreon members. We're doing a giveaway each and every month for the next three months now. Uh, we announced the July winner, which was Colton S. Uh, he walked away. Uh, he chose the Final Rise vest um, from Final Rise, and so congrats, Colton. Um, we still have three more opportunities to uh, to give away some awesome prizes, including the Cable Gangs tie-out system, a knife from Upland Knife Company, and a Gunner Fan Kit 2.0. And so uh, make sure you sign up on Patreon. Uh, I will announce the next winner the 1st of September. So September 1st, I will announce uh, the winner of the August giveaway. So um, one thing on Patreon I want to just mention and say thank you to. Um, again, I know there's some awesome giveaways. I'll be doing uh, this one here for this this next few months, and I'll do more in the future, of course. Um, just know that your support um, to the podcast through Patreon um, is helping the podcast directly. I want to give you an example of that. Um, so I've, I've currently been recording uh, this last year and a half on a Blue Yeti microphone, which has been awesome. It's a great, great starter microphone for any podcaster, I think. Um, but I was noticing with my crazy household, uh, lots of kids, dogs, <laughs> I mean, you name it, uh, recording here in my garage, um, I, it, it, it's a um, dynamic microphone. And so if you know anything about mics, it picks up every freaking thing, everything. Um, every breath from me, um, noise from the kids inside through a wall and a closed door, it's that sensitive. And so again, for the most part, I've been able to you know mitigate that with some editing and, and uh, volume controls and all that. But um, so I, I took money from Patreon this past month and upgraded my microphone. So got a condenser microphone or a little bit better quality. Um, so thank you. I just wanted to, to let you guys know where your, uh, your money is going by supporting the podcast through Patreon. Um, I was able to go directly back into the podcast, upgrade my microphone, did some other sound, um, sound quality improvements here in my little garage corner. Um, so hopefully you can hear that. I'm still working out and learning how to use this mic, but, um, just wanted to say thank you for the support. And, um, again, we got some sweet giveaways. The one giveaway I wanted to highlight, I'm going to highlight, um, so we have three left. We got the cable gangs, the knife, comp uh, up a knife company and the gunner fan kit. Um, each of the next couple of weeks, I'm going to highlight each of those items. Uh, so I'm going to highlight the cable gangs tie-out system. So that is a, uh, freaking awesome tie-out system. Um, I, I picked this up about a year and a half ago, maybe close to two years now. And, um, it's been phenomenal guys. It is a product that, um, is made here in the USA, Louisiana. Brennan Landry is uh, cranking these out down in Louisiana. And uh, if you want to talk about a badass bird dog guy, 
you're going to want to reach out to Brennan. Um, he's got some great pointers, uh, a couple Britneys, I think, one or two Britneys maybe. And uh, just a great guy to work with. Um, he's been phenomenal. Every time I reach out to him with a question or a comment, um, customer service is speaks volume, guys. And I want to work with companies and be involved with companies that um, I, I just l really love the people. And Brennan is uh, hands down uh, second to none um, with customer service, feedback, um, innovation. I mean, he is always cranking out custom tieout systems. And I think I think his slogan is something like break dogs, not tieouts. And uh, these tieouts, um, again, top-notch quality tieout systems. And again, customizable. Uh, if you want to, you know, I don't know, 14 dog system. Sure. Go ahead and shoot him a message. And uh, I'm sure he'd love to work with you guys. And so I currently have, I have a three dog uh, tie out system with two ground stakes. So technically I can turn that into a five dog system. And uh, that's been really nice. Uh, if I got my, my dogs, a couple buddies, dogs, um, you have plenty of room for all them on the, on the, uh, the cable gang. So, um, check him out. Cablegangs.com. Um, he's cranking out new products all the time. He just came out with a, a roading rig. Um, um, for if you rode a dog off an ATV, um, I might want to check one of those out as well for biking. It's kind of like a little bungee accessory. So um, I think he's being pretty cool, pretty innovative with some new products over at Cable Gang. So um, I will also do an episode uh, maybe even maybe with Brennan or, or maybe someone um, in the in the world who really knows kind of the importance of a tie-out system for a dog. Um, I know Ron Bame did a, an episode a while back, uh, I think with... Uh, Oh, what's her name? Tana, Tana from True Grit Brits, and they did a whole whole uh, conversation on the importance of a tieout system and what a, a dog is learning from that. And it was fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely try to do one in the future. Um, I I can't again. That's something I've seen firsthand. I had no idea what a tieout system was, you know, five years ago or the importance of it. But as I've, I've been in this more. It's been something that has been so valuable. Um, the, the neck pressure and the neck cues that a dog will kind of teach themselves on that, if you will. Um, there's some some really cool um, stuff behind that. So stay tuned for that. That'll, that'll definitely come in the future. But check out Cable Gangs uh, for all your tie-out system needs. Um, all right, guys. Other than that, I think that's a wrap for this intro. Sorry, this was a little bit long. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention is if you are still considering a uh, dog box, if you've ever considered a dog box, um, check out bprokennels.com. And we have a promo code for all listeners of the podcast. That is Rookie. 10. So rookie 10 is going to save you 10% off your order uh, at B pro kennels. So Ben is cranking out some dog boxes uh, over there. Um, Patreon members, you guys get a little bit more, uh, a little bit bigger of a discount uh, for Patreon members only. So um, if you are seriously considering a dog box, head over to Patreon and uh, there'll be a, a larger promo code over there for Patreon members. So anyways, guys, um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Again, sorry for the long intro and hope everyone has a great week. So glad to have you guys on the podcast. Um, can you guys, two things first, uh, tell us each a little bit who you are and, uh, and put us on the map. Where are you talking to us from? Well, we are sitting in the hills of Northern Oklahoma right now. Uh, we moved over here north of Pahuska, Oklahoma about three years ago and started our facility here. Um, originally, the family uh, started training dogs in Big Cabin, which is about 90 miles east of here. That's the original location for all the, the dog training, the beginning of all the dog training. 
but we are located now just about six miles south of the Kansas line in Osage County. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And so we're talking to Susanna and Ronnie Smith, and we are so glad uh, you guys have uh, taken the time to, uh, to carve out your busy schedules and uh, chat with me on the podcast here. So thank you guys. Um, can you guys, can you guys tell us a little bit, um, again, if someone's not familiar with the Smith family, can you give us a little history, maybe a little background on, uh, on the Smith family and all that? Sure. So, um, there, uh, there are two, two dog trainers in the Smith family. And one was my father, Ronnie Smith senior. And the other is my uncle Dilmer, who's 96 and still alive. And, uh, they, uh, the Smith boys grew up in big cabin, Oklahoma. And at the time they were growing up, there were a lot of professional bird dog trainers in that area. Um, the, uh, you know, the Indian Indian territory, uh, of Oklahoma, once it opened up and we had statehood, there were a lot of, um, it, it was wild and prolific with games. So there were a lot of pro trainers that came in because of the oil money around Tolson, Bartlesville, Ponca city. And, uh, a lot of the trainers, um, were there. So, uh, it's, it's steeped in, in that kind of, of tradition. So my uncle Delmer and my father's worked for, uh, some of the, uh, uh, the trainers around there and then started training on their own and developed a reputation. My, uh, my uncle Delmer moved to Edmond, Oklahoma. My father stayed in big cabin and, uh, and that's where I, I came onto the scene. They, uh, my cousin, uh, cousins, Rick and Tom, my father, Ronnie Sr., and my uncle Delmer, all field trial horseback dogs. Delmer and uh, Rick, uh, horseback Britneys, and Tom and my father uh, ran pointers and setters. So in about 79, 78, 79, um, the family went to South Texas. That's when the King Ranch had started to lease to lease the land out. So corporations uh, leased that land and there was a need for dog handlers. And uh, my family went there in the late seventies and, and uh, had, uh, I don't know, contract on four camps, I believe, uh, separate hunting camps, wild bird operation. And so that's, that's where, when I graduated high school, that's just where I went was South Texas and spent a little over 40 years down there. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So when, so again, expand on that a little bit more. When did you come into the operation then? And when did you kind of really start to, uh, you know, work with dogs more and kind of where, where did that passion start to develop for you? Right. So Growing up around uh, a dog trainer, rural environment, um, you everybody has to work, right? So uh, at five years of age, I was, uh, at that time, it was a hoe and a shovel and a wheelbarrow, you know, in gravel runs. There were no concrete and water. So I would clean dog kennels and make sure that uh, the, the dogs had water. I was five years old. I thought that I did an excellent job. And then once I had five-year-old children of my own, I realized that I probably did a five-year-old job back then. You know, it was, it was defining for me. Um, I, uh, I flushed birds for my father. I shot birds for my father. 
And then when I was uh, 14, I, I got paid to train my first dog. Now, obviously my father was there and made sure everything go right, but I, it was all, all my work. And, um, you know, uh, uh, that was, that was kind of a, a step up for me and, and trained, um, dogs, um, with my father all the way through high school. Wow. And, uh, uh, and then when I was 19, went to the hunting camps in South Texas and uh, stayed there uh, up until last year. Wow. Wow. So you were, you were in it very young. <laughs> you were, you were thrown wow. in and yeah. training your own dog and yeah. that's cool. And it's Susanna, for all the Smith boys, I mean, that's, that's all anybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's what we do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Susanna, so when, so how did you two meet, I guess, and, and where, talk a little bit about, you know, how did you get, how did you get down this path? How did I get roped into it? Um, so Ronnie and I met in 2003. I had a, a short hair at the time and um, decided that needed to get her trained. And I was actually living just a few miles down the road from Rick Smith. And I thought, well, you know, known of the Smiths all my life and I'll just send my dog to Rick Smith since he's handy. And that just makes sense. I was going to be working on a, a cattle ranch in Australia for a few months so in that time span. Um, I could get that dog trained and, and she could have some benefit from me being gone. Um, I tried to get in with Rick and he said, no, I, I can't train your dog right now. But I do have a cousin in Oklahoma who trains dogs. Mm. Oh, I don't know if I really want to do that, <laughs> but I took a leap of faith and I sent that, um, outlaw bird dog up to Oklahoma and, um, that's kind of all <laughs> she wrote. That's where I, this guy came in. <laughs> yeah, I picked up that, that short hair and I have to admit she wasn't quite finished because she wasn't finished even the day she died years later. We trained <laughs> on her together for the rest of her life. <laughs> Work yeah, in progress. Beginning of my, my bird dog training. I grew up with dogs. We had um, cow dogs, uh, lion hounds. We had bird dogs. My mom field trialed when I was growing up. Um, but that was really the beginning of doing it in a serious way. So I've been training full time since 2006, I guess. Wow. Okay. That's great. And Ronnie, I know you said, so you said Delmar, Delmar's still, still alive and well, right? He is. Very much okay. So. so he's, he's, he's the one who kind of started this whole thing. So that's your, is that your, remind me, grandpa? That is my uncle. Your uncle. Okay. So yeah, Delmar's your my uncle. Father were brothers, right? Okay. Okay. And then your, your father is Rick, correct? Ronnie. Right. Right. Rick is my cousin. Rick is your yeah, cousin. My okay. father, I'm Ronnie Jr. And my father was Ronnie Sr. He passed away in 82. Gotcha. Okay. Two Ronnies, Ronnie Jr. Ronnie Sr. Gotcha. <laughs> so Delmer's two sons are Rick and Tom, and they're both professional trainers. Okay. Gotcha. What uh, I, you touched on this briefly in the, in the beginning, you know, going back to Delmar, your grandpa, it was, was he getting into field trials while bird hunting? Like, like what, what was it for him that led him down this path to, to start kennel dogs, breeding all that? Yeah. So he, uh, he had worked for uh, a trainer by the last name of Epperson. And then he started to date her, or I'm sorry, his daughter. And eventually they got married and that's 
So that was that I think was the introduction to bird dogs, and they field trialed uh, dogs horseback, and uh, and at that time there was a lot of hunting as well, and um, my uncle uh, explains it like there there were dogs that that had problems, and they would send them to the two Smith kids, you know, and 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 those boys focused on it and were able to 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 work some things out that um, you know maybe the the pro trainers. Uh, didn't have time to fiddle with uh, or, or the inclination to. Um, but as a result, developed uh, 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 quite a reputation and uh, started receiving dogs in for training. And, and it just, it really um, was, it was a life's work that, that has led us to multi-generationally here we are now. Yeah. That is so cool. Um, I know you, you mentioned briefly, um, guiding guiding on the king ranch is that right uh, we have guided on the is king that ranch. is that something so that is that talk a little bit more about that is that just is that property of your family or ranch of your family or is that an area no. you guys just guide yeah that's that's a that is a, a a very very large ranch in south texas um i'm not sure exactly at eight hundred fifty thousand acres wow. roughly and uh, it's uh, it's four divisions. Um, there are a lot of people that guide on the King Ranch. Okay. Um, so on the King Ranch, you can you can lease property to hunt. Um, there are clubs that do that. There are corporations that do that. And then there there are family members that do that. Part of what they call the Heritage Club. Okay. And um, we have been on both sides of that. We have have been in there guiding hunts for people that have leases. Uh, we have been in guide hunts. The last six years was for uh, family members, um, the Alexanders uh, there and at the Norris Division of King Ranch. Wow. Very cool. In like it's big country, um, uh, you know, a lot of wild games. It's got pigs. It's got javelina, uh, nail guy, which is an Indian antelope, um, quail, turkey, uh, dove, deer, you, rattlesnakes. <laughs> uh, got a little bit of everything. everything. Yeah, everything will stick, sting, or bite you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's tough country. But it's it's a neat ranch to experience because of the history. You know, um, the King Ranch was started in the late 1800s and is still still held by the same family. So the tradition and the culture um, is really really neat to see. Same thing with the the Four Sixes Ranch that we've guided on. Um, it start probably a little later than the King Ranch. I'm not sure on the date, but again, held in the family for generations and, and just rich in, in tradition and in the cowboy culture, Western culture and the hunting culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and is, is very valuable and means a lot to, to all the family members. So it's neat to be able to experience some of those, um, ranches like that. Absolutely. That's got to be a, yeah, an incredible experience. Are those, um, as far as upland birds goes, I mean, obviously it's we're primarily quail, right? And are those pretty much wild quail? Are they, do they supplement with some, some birds that they have to release? And it's all wild birds. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure on the King ranch, you're, you're not allowed to supplement um, it, whatever's in, uh, you, you have to leave it wild, whatever's indig indigenous, you, you cannot supplement, uh, anything. Um, 
And we were on the uh, the Mariposa Ranch there in Foul Furious for about 30 seasons. Mm. Same thing. It was all wild. It's the four, six, three inch, all wild birds. Wow. Wow. So is that something you, will you guys travel down? Is it kind of during the, the winter time or like when will you go down there and for how long? Yeah. Season in Texas um, is November through February. Okay. So yeah, we used to, uh, we used to be, um, have a real migratory pattern where, uh, beginning a hunting season in Texas, we would be down there. We would start at the, the four sixes and spend, um, roughly six weeks there and then move South to either the Mariposa or the King ranch and finish out the season down there. But since we have this new place in Osage County, Oklahoma, um, we're trying to stay home more. We've got nine-year-old twins so we're not guiding anymore. We're, uh, we're trying to stay home more. And we've learned that, um, we can train dogs in the wintertime instead of the summertime. So we're having a real a shift in our schedule and what we're doing, which is kind of fun. Everything's got a little bit of a new twist to yeah, it. Definitely. So rearranging things. Yeah. Yeah. Figuring out schedules. I, I have uh, two and a half year old twins right now as well. So it's, oh. it's fun. It's fun. We got, uh, yeah, we got five kids, one on the way right now in September. So, um, a little, a little crazy. So I, I get this managing schedules is tough. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's fun though. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, a little bit about your kennel that you're running right now. Like what, like tell us a little bit about, um, the kind of dogs you're training your program. Like, like tell us a little bit about that. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, um, we just in the last few years, I guess we have decided to just specialize in, in pointing breeds. We used to work some flushers, um, but we've decided we're just specializing in pointing breeds. So basically any pointing breed will work with you look at our any given day and they'll be everything from draw thires, um, griffs, short hairs, vishlas, um, obviously a lot of Britneys and a lot of pointers because that's kind of what our family's known for. Um, most of our personal dogs are pointers or Brittany. So there's always a, a high percentage of pointers and Brittany's in our kennels. We will take two training classes a year. Our next training class will begin in October and run through the end of December. And then we'll take another three month training class next spring. So we'll, we'll receive those dogs and keep them for three months and take them through, um, the three levels of our training format, which are the foundation intermediate and the advanced. Mm. And, um, most of our dogs are, uh, gun dogs. We do a few competition dogs. Um, but I'd say the majority of them are, are gun dogs. Okay. Anything to add to that? Yeah. You nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> she, she covered it all. She covered it all. Um, speaking of, of trials or competitions, are you guys personally running any, any of your dogs in ancient trials or have you in the past? Right. We, we, we are not running anything. You know, we, um, our, our schedule for the year was, is that we would take a, a, a 90 day class of dogs, um, like, uh, March, April, May, and then another one, June, July, August, and then go to Montana for 30 days in September, and then go to South Texas, um, uh, November, December, January, January February. Um, so, yeah, we're there, there was no no time for that. Yeah, yeah. And and so that that 90 day class training class that you're taking dogs in is that kind of the um, you know at the end of three months is that a 
pretty much a broke dog, a finished dog at the end of that 90 days. Uh, kind of what are you, what are you walking through that dog, uh, through that, those 90 days, just kind of a, maybe an overview. They're never finished. <laughs> They're always a work in progress. That's a good, that's a good point. So yeah, basically, um, at the 90 days is as fast as we feel comfortable bringing a dog through the training program. We don't want to push them any harder than that. Um, so we consider those dogs at the end of the 90 days being green broke. They have all the skills. Um, they have all the cues. They, they know what to do. They just need more experience, more time in the field. Um, and, and to take those, those conditioned responses and really, um, build it into deeply ingrained learned behavior. So yeah, that, that 90 days is the bare minimum to get a dog. Well, if you boil it down to the, the very basic things we're doing, every dog needs to know three things. They need to stand still, go with you and come to you. So the standstill, you know, we teach them to stand on cue to woe. Um, we do that through the use of the, the woe post, which is just a mechanical cue to have them stand still. And from there, we can transition to the remote cue of an e-collar. And then from there, we can transition to actually steadying those dogs up. So it's, it's a step-by-step process that each of these dogs go through. Um, the beginning of the, the go with you skill set is just to learn how to heal on a loose lead, to, to look to the handler and go where the handler is going. And then that transitions to going with you in the field. And the coming to you, you know, that's every dog needs to know how to recall. Um, so we start with that very basic thing on a rope, teach the behavior, able to transition that to an e-collar, and then eventually take it to the field and work on the retrieve with that discipline. So everything we do is, is building up to where the dogs are. Probably the last two weeks of training is where they're able to tie everything together and, and really um be proficient in the field and in life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really good. How many, how many personal dogs do you guys have right now? And, and what Ooh, are, you never asked that. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a good question. You don't count. <laughs> yeah. He's a dog collector. So no. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's okay. Easy. Just Brittany's pointers. Bowl. <laughs> Um, yes, yes. Yeah. yes to all. <laughs> Labrador. So, yeah, uh, we don't uh, breed much, but we breed a couple of litters a year. And uh-huh. somehow every litter, we seem to keep two puppies. We somehow. We, there's that French <laughs> word, right? That is no. joint decision or <laughs> no. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, she tells me we're keeping two and I go yeah. along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're keeping two. (laughs) Very smart, very smart. Well, I gotta ask: do you do you keep two to evaluate them, or do you keep two for the long haul? Yes. Yeah. So everything we're doing here, we're looking two and three generations down the line, and what traits we want to build on to to, um, kind of phase out, and and so. You can't tell at eight weeks, which is going to be the best stud dog in a litter. I mean, you just, it's not reality. So we'll keep them at least to a year of age and make a decision. Okay. This is the best bet for this set of genetics. We're going to go with this dog. And then it may even take until year two before we make that decision. So we try to give them um, time to develop and really, really showcase who they are before we make that decision. 
Can you, can you guys expand on that a little bit more, kind of the, the evaluation process of a puppy and maybe what are some of the things I guess you are looking for? Um, say you have two pups and you're evaluating them, you know, is, is it, you just go through some of those nuances of, of things that you're looking for as you're evaluating dogs. Well, um, I'll, I'll make it a little bit broader than that. Um, when Ronnie and I are training dogs, what we have, what we have realized is there's really three things that dictate how well a dog does in training in the field and just in life in general. So that is composure, compliance, and confidence. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at any dog, that's kind of the baseline where we start. So if we're talking about with a puppy, um, we want puppies that are confident in any environment because a bird dog is going to be taken to a lot of different places, exposed to a lot of different things. You know, we recognize that most bird dogs live in the house and have a very um, stable day-to-day -day life and routine, but then they're, they may be asked to load up in the truck and go on a two day drive to South Dakota to a, a big hunt, or they may be loaded up to go to Georgia and go to a, a plantation hunt or something. And, and they're very, very seldom are they asked to perform in familiar territory. Um, it's always new ground. So we want a dog that is confident in, in um, being around other dogs, people, new environments, um, we just want a very resilient dog. So we look at that with our puppies um, really in depth. And we really work to build that as well. We're doing with our puppies, we're doing the, uh, the military uh, super puppy program to build that resilience um, beginning day three of their life. And then as they, as they mature, you know, five, six weeks, we're, we're constantly adding new stimuli and, and trying to build their confidence and in the environment. Mm. So that's probably the very first thing we look at is their confidence. Yeah. Um, and then composure too. You know, we all want a dog that's going to go out there in the field and, and give it 110%, you know, just do the very best job he can possibly do. But the flip side of that is that when he's not in the field, he's probably in the house. Mm. So for ease of living with them, we need a dog that is, capable of being calm mm. and also for for training purposes a, a composed animal is one that's easier to teach so those probably are the two that um we really look at at a young age you know compliance with a puppy we are teaching them a lot but we're not really looking for a, a puppy that does everything perfect every time we ask you know that's just not reality with a puppy so really as a puppy look at that confidence anything to add to that and of course style and drive and all that but that's kind of a given confirmation <laughs> confirmation right. yeah all that plays in yeah. but i think um the ronnie and i focus a lot on the mindset the mental side of things and that's um kind of where that's focused yeah, no, that's, that's huge guys. Um, I, I have so many questions on that. <laughs> um, with, with that though, uh, for, real quick, first thing came to mind, um, with style I, again, that I know it's not a, a make it or break it for a good bird dog. Is that something though you can 
I guess, breed for, or is that something if the parents stylish or the grandparents are stylish, the puppies are going to have a better chance of being stylish, or is that something you can work with a dog on? Does that make sense? You're constantly breeding for a body type, a style. You know, if you look at every breeder across the, the U S they're going to have a certain body style that they like, and those are going to be the dogs that they're drawn to. Um, and that's purely personal preference. Um, but as far as basic confirmation and everything, you know, that's, that's more static. Um, and you can breed for that style. You can breed for that confirmation, but breeding is also a lot like the lottery. You can't say, okay, I'm going to take these two fantastic animals and I'm going to breed them together. And every puppy is going to be exactly like that. It doesn't work out that way, but, um, that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> right. You hope, you hope someone told me once it's, it's like an odds game, really. It's just, you can up your chances by, you know, getting some great parents and grandparents. But yeah, like you said, there's no, there's no guarantee. Absolutely. That's cool. Um, what are more, so I'm just curious, what are some of the, the Brittany lines or name of dogs that are in the Smith line that, that maybe people would, would recognize? Well, Dell started with uh, the Britneys and I think his first championship was 55, 1955. And that would have been with Towsy. Towsy was the, the first Brittany that Delmer had come into his kennel, much less take to a championship. It was the first Brittany he had come into his kennel. Um, so he got really lucky from the get-go with that. That was when the Britneys were really coming into the United States in a, a pretty big way. Um, so he started Towsy and then holiday Brit was a, a, a hall of fame dog that he handled, um, trying to think who else, um, Brit's bazooka, bazooka, brandy, wake Jill, a lot of the older kind of foundation lines. And then of course, Rick, um, Rick guided or, uh, field trialed with Perry's rustic prince. Pacolet, Cheyenne, Sam, and those are still dogs that you see in pedigrees today. And all of our dogs that we have here, um, at some point go back and, and their pedigree touches those original dogs that Delmer had, even in the fifties, wow. and then going through to, to Rick's dogs that he campaigned with and he worked with. Wow. So it's a, it's a really unique line of Brittany's and we're trying to preserve that. Ronnie and I got, what was it? Maybe about half a dozen years ago, we looked up and like, we're, we're probably not going to breed Britneys anymore, even though we had two of the best Britneys that Ronnie and I personally have probably ever had. We just, we started to kind of walk away from the Britneys and just here lately, we realized what a foolish decision. That was. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going back and, and rebuilding our string based on those two. We're doing some outcrossing, trying to go back to, to other dogs that go back to that lineage and um, really we're turning out some really fun litters right now. So it's kind of a, a reestablished endeavor for us. It's, it's yeah. pretty fun. Oh, that's fantastic. And how many dogs is it you said you had? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I'm going to get this answer. I promise. <laughs> we can give you a number. <laughs> 15. <laughs> north, north or south. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere between. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have a litter in a week or so. So, you know, that's a, that's in a state of flux. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, um, can you guys, uh, would love maybe hear from each of you. I know maybe you've, you've each had some of your own personal dogs. 
maybe pick one personal dog each that is maybe a standout dog that, that you've got to own, that you've trained and what made them special and what, what made them stand out in your minds? Uh, again, I know there may be a lots of them, um, but I'd love to hear kind of, again, with your knowledge and your experience, like, like what did, what is it that you saw in those dogs that made them special? For me, I think it would be heart and character when you, when you were posing that question. Um, the first dog that came to my mind was a, a black and white pointer that Ronnie and I had for years named dude. And, um, he was tougher than a boot and, um, would go out there in the, the hot hunting field in South Texas and just give it his all every time he gave it his all. And he was a house dog that, um, was a complete goober to live with <laughs> just a goober. And I, and I think those two traits are what, what really, appeal to me as far as our personal dogs. I like to have ones that have a personality and heart. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know thinking about that as Susanna was talking. Um, I've had the, the, the been fortunate in that there's probably half a dozen dogs that, uh, that, that we've either owned or trained that, um, were dogs that, that you were, you know, most of the dogs we get, we see for 90 days and then they go away and they might come back for a tune up the next year or year after year. But, but to own dogs for a long period of time, that's, that's, we've not had a lot of that, but there are probably half a dozen dogs that had for a number of seasons in those good bird years that, um, you know, you were consistent in what, in your boundaries and what you ask. And they just, you could almost will them into hitting an objective. You know what I mean? It's it's like you'd be sitting there on the front of that truck running those dogs and, and, and giving them their head. And they were, I mean, going to the country and, uh, and, and um, just a, a pleasure to sit there and watch. Um, uh, not many people get to see that, mm-hmm. you know, now that we quit guiding, we probably won't see that again either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, definitely want to get into a little, to, um, some training stuff. I, you know, we have to, t- have to talk about some training things with you guys, but also um, want to touch on kind of like developing a, a bird dog and just have some things around that. Um, really kind of, again, it's kind of a broad, maybe broad, broader question, but when, you, when you're thinking about developing a, a young dog and really bringing out their natural abilities, like what are some of the, the key things in, in that? And again, just for more context, like developing a wild bird dog. Again, there's, there's dogs that maybe see a lot of pen raised birds and again, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but like when you think about developing a wild bird dog and bringing out their natural ability, like what are some of the keys to that? So if I may, so you, so you said something about a young dog initially, and, and then we went to a wild bird dog. So, um, exactly. I'll go to the latter. Um, you know, in, in all of the, in all of the years that, that, um, you know, I'll speak for myself personally in all of the years that, that I guided, um, the, the one definitive thing that, uh, that I took from all of that, you know, when I was in my twenties, I would have, 
I knew everything that was going on and, and, and you didn't believe me, ask me and I would tell you. And as, as the decades rolled on, I realized that I didn't know anything. Um, you either found the birds or you didn't basically. But the one, the one definitive thing that I did take from that experience was, was the dog's mindset. Um, you can have a, a dog that's very highly trained and, and, um, uh, does, does everything right and still not have a bird finder. And you can take a dog, a, a young pup that, that has no training, but if he is more focused and intent on finding game than your trained bird dog, he will find more game than your trained bird dog. So it is all about the mind. It's all about the focus and intent of finding birds, period. Training has nothing to do with it. That just gives you enforceable manners in the field where it should, right? It shows the dog, it trains the dog to do what it is that you want him to do. But it's, it's the mind um, that makes the, obviously, um, success develops proficiency, um, but still it, it's, uh, it's the dog's you, you want to try to have an apex predator when you go to the field, you know, you want, you want that mindset and uh, that dog will find game. Sometimes they'll find a lot of different game, but, <laughs> um, but it, that's the mindset you want. Well, and to take that even a little bit further, that mindset, um, it, it doesn't just happen. You have to present that dog with opportunities throughout their life. And there's a couple of, of windows of opportunity for those dogs to, to really develop that, that um, higher predator mindset. Um, as puppies, they need to get on birds. They need to be comfortable uh, in the field and they need to be, have reasonable success on birds. And then as, as they go through their, their first year, you know, they, they need consistent exposure on birds. And what Ronnie and I have found too, is those dogs that see a lot of birds their first year after their training, that first season, if they are fortunate enough to get into consistent numbers of birds, particularly wild birds, um, they are more likely to stay in that super proficient predatory mindset for the rest of their life. Mm. Dogs that miss those windows of opportunity, it's harder to get them to that level just because they didn't get the experience at the right time. Mm. You know, if you, if you put it in, you know, think about us, you know, those, those experiences that you've had were, uh, if you've been fortunate enough to see a lot of birds and in Susanna and I have, um, it instills hope. Mm-hmm. So, so on those down years, you keep going because you see that birdie area or if you're hunting in the same environment, you know, there's a covey there at last year, the year before, and, 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 and you just, you keep going. And that's what we see with the dogs that, that um, have a lot of, of wild bird contact their first year and, and definitely has to happen by the second year. Um, it, it instills that hope. Those dogs that don't get that uh, have a tendency to have a lot of quit to them. Mm. You know, whenever it gets hot or the grass birds are bad or things get tough or there, there's too long of, of, of time 
um, between one covey to the next, mm-hmm. um, they lose focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the bird contact is the first season is very, very important. Yeah. So, so it sounds like with, with a young pup, the big thing I'm, I'm kind of hearing from you two right now is, is bird exposures is really key. How young will you start introducing birds to, to, again, let's, let's talk, take a young dog. How, how soon will you introduce uh, a young dog to birds and how will you do that? So like with the, the puppies that we raise here, um, we start taking them out in the field after they're, they're six weeks of age. Um, you know, that's when they can, they can navigate the grass and the rocks and they can be comfortable and successful. And we'll go out there and initially we're working on the go with you. We want them to come and start following us, looking to us for direction. And, and we'll get into some quail just inadvertently. We'll get into some birds, but typically that's kind of a wasted opportunity for those little bitty guys. They're not, their senses aren't aware enough to really pick up on that. So we'll take some pigeons and we'll restrain them and, and let those puppies on those trips, we'll let them um, find and investigate those birds. And we, and we restrain the pigeons so that we don't scare the puppies. We want to set the puppies up for success and take baby steps. So um, we will restrain the pigeons so the puppies can investigate, get their, their mouths on the bird, get comfortable, um, learn the scent. And then we can start hiding those birds where the puppy starts picking up on, Oh, I smelled a little bit of pigeon scent and and follow that into the grass or whatever. And then we'll build up to where by the time our, our puppies are going home, they are finding quail on their own on those walks. They're able to progress to where they, they catch quail scent and they can follow it. Even if that quail is running, they'll, they'll work it a little bit and then chase it off a little bit. So, so we start a very young age and then we just keep presenting them with opportunities that first year. You know, you can, you can take those young puppies. We have Johnny houses or callback houses and you can turn those quail loose and bring those little puppies in there. Uh, And if they can see, that those quail run on the ground, you, you know, for a little puppy, the, the quail that don't fly real well, and I'm talking eight, nine, 10 weeks old. Um, and then that's breed specific to it. You know, you can take a 10 month old pointer and it's a different, maybe a different, different dog than 10 month old Brittany. Right. So, um, uh, but you can take those puppies and let them see that, that, that bird running. So that, kicks in the prey chase right and if the bird doesn't fly far then that dog will chase it to where it landed and he knows it's there because he saw it Mm. so there's the mindset Mm. those little puppies will hunt and hunt and hunt and hunt and hunt because they know it's there and they'll eventually find it and then they learn to work scent and and there's that's thing those are things you can't teach um, where in the same scenario, if you have a bird that the puppy sees it run and he chases it after and he gets up and flies a hundred yards, that's just over that, that deal is over. That puppy's not going to run a hundred. He can't even see it fly that far, you mm-hmm. know? So again, it's all about mindset. Yeah. And we're big believers about, um, trying to stay out of the equation, you know, let, let nature take its course, let those puppies build that instinct on their own. We try, we try not to say much to them. We try to just 
kind of be invisible at that point. We don't want to interfere with the learning process. We want that what's natural to take place. Yeah. Don't, don't think you're going to be talking to that dog, telling that dog how good this is. Right. (laughs) That's, it's not going to work just a, right <laughs> you're just you're just to walk walk with them like, like susanna said you know that the coming with you at that point you're just walking they can kind of follow you but you're not yeah That's I'm, right. I'm sure i'm sure you've seen you know people with a 10 week old puppy trying to woe it or you know like, you're like slow down yeah. slow down yeah. Yeah. um so okay so here's a, a question to the flip side of that so you talk about mindset a lot a dog in the right mindset so say you get a dog you know at your training sent to you and say it didn't see a lot of birds the first year of its life how do, how do you work with that dog then to build its drive and expose it then to birds it's a little bit on the older side hasn't had a lot of exposure well unfortunately we see that a lot um, just because of, of how society lives these days, you know, most bird dogs live in, in an urban environment and, you know, the realities of, of life get in the way, you know, when we all get a puppy, we have high expectations and, and think that we're going to be able to do all these special things with the dogs. But in reality, you know, there's only so much time in the day and it's hard to get out there. It's hard to carve some time away for that puppy to, you know, maybe drive. A lot of our clients have to drive even two hours to get to where they can get that puppy on birds. So the reality of it is that a lot of puppies don't see game birds their first year of life. A lot of dogs don't see a bird until they come to us for training. But fortunately, because of the instincts and because of their genetics, we're able to ignite that fire and, and they, they come along just fine. Um, we'll typically spend at least the first two weeks of training, really just immersing all of the dogs in birds. We want to make sure that we have that prey drive built to as much of a pinnacle as the genetics will allow. So a lot of bird exposure early on before we ever even think about manipulating their behavior around birds. We want them confidently going in, working scent, learning how to work scent. We don't want to teach dogs to catch a little faint whiff of scent and stop cautiously. Mm. We want them to learn where that bird is based on the scent. You know, so that may mean they go in and they punch birds and rip them out and chase them for the first couple of weeks. And that's okay. Mm. So we really try to build that, that prey drive early on and then slowly and gently start introducing rules and new behavior. And I'll go further. Something that's chasing rabbit trail, which I'm so prone to do. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. You know, right. You know, talking about the, the mindset of dog, everything that Susanna just described that we do prior to putting any rules um, uh, or, or experience, Expecting any kind of behavior in and around game. We do the same thing when we would go to Montana with 25 dogs that, that we had trained. We only took dogs that we trained because um, we, we knew the foundation that they had um, and, 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 and we could um, build off of that. And, and There's no guesswork in right, how to handle them right. in the field. So when we would go to Montana uh, and run on wild birds, um, Typically, the first, and, and it depends on the amount of contact they had. So I'll just use the number two weeks, which on some dogs may be three days, and on some dogs could be two weeks. But we would let those dogs have bird contact, and 
and, and we didn't have much input. Mm-hmm. Really what we were trying to, to, to develop was de- the desire, right? The unbridled passion to go find game. And once those dogs, dogs were finding game consistently, our foundation's in place, our training's in place, we can steady them up on, on one bird. Mm-hmm. And that's what we would do. We would, we, would, we would pull that behavior back in and get those dogs steadied up so that when we sent that dog home, by golly, they were bird finders in, in, in their manners were in place. And the reason they needed that time or really benefited from that time is because it was a new type of bird, a new scent, a new environment. So we didn't want to just start out the first run on sharp tailed grouse to be in the dog's world somewhere. They weren't real sure what was going on and they were having to abide by a lot of rules, have a lot on their mind, a lot of stress we kind of went back to that puppy mindset to go out there and learn that new scent, learn how to work that new scent. And then we'll take care of the manners later on and really have dogs that are more confident on game by doing that. You know, when you transition to a new scent, you go to like sharp tails. Dogs don't know that that's a game bird. That's just another scent to them. If we wanted, we could have dogs pointing metal arcs. We could have dogs pointing um, any anything you want. It it is all a scent to them, and and that's it. So, when you would take those those first year dogs to Hungarian partridge or sharp tailed grouse or pheasant, um, it was just a scent. A bird got up. Seldom, very seldom, will they point it. Mm. Um, they would smell it. They would work it. A bird would get up, and they would either drop their nose on the ground and move off, or chase it. Right. And then again, whenever you put the rules to it, then they're like, oh, okay. So we're hunting this scent too now. Uh, so, okay. So take that, just that last part you said a step further. So when does it click for the dog? When have you seen it click for them that they go, oh, that's a sharp tail. This is what we're hunting now. If they've right. never experienced it. Right. So for us, we, um, we will train all of our, our, our gun dogs or hunting dogs to where they're steady through the flush and and wing right steady through wing so a dog points the birds fly off and if you don't shoot or release that dog he stands there so for our dogs um when we got in would get them into a sharp tail and uh when that bird would get up and fly we decided we would just stop them with training collar stop the chase stop the chase so then all so then all rules apply, right? So then then we have steadied that dog up on sharp tail grouse. So that allows them um, to work that scent initially as they as they see fit. And then when that bird gets up, we're stopping the chase. And that's what identifies to the dog, oh, I'm supposed to be steady on this. And and to go to address your question a little bit, how long it takes, it depends a lot on the experience of the dog at the time. So like our, our, uh, guide string, um, most of those dogs for their entire life, all they ever saw were wild quail. We never, um, guided hunts on pheasant or, or most of our dogs didn't get the opportunity to go to Montana because that's a client opportunity, not hired. <laughs> We'd usually take one or two of our dogs each year. But um, most of our dogs had only experienced wild quail. We did a video in Kansas um, working with Garmin, 
And we brought our guide string straight from South Texas, 80, 90 degree temperatures to Kansas. And it was freezing 20 degrees for a high and 20 mile an hour winds. And we were on, um, what did we have there? We had chucker and and pheasant and they had quail too. But, um, so we were filming a TV show and I remember one of our top bird dogs, um, works in she was just curious she works in a little bit and had no intensity no style and a pheasant got up and she's like whoa is that a buzzard (laughs) completely rocked back on her heels not what she was expecting but she started to chase a little bit i think you were handling her and you just stopped her and within a few bird contacts because of her extensive experience within a few bird contacts she was hunting those pheasants. She knew she had purpose out there and that's the scent that she was looking for. So the amount of time it takes to transition different types of birds just depends on their experience really. And their training. And their training. You've got to be able to to differentiate. You know, if you if your dog does not have the training or a good color foundation and your your dog gets into a different species and you were to make a correction with collar and they turn and they come back to you. Well, then that's a deterrent mm-hmm. that that's not going to teach that dog to, to point that game. Mm-hmm. That, that won't work. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> this, this could be a three day podcast. Um, <laughs> my goodness. Um, so yes, so really like those, again, kind of applying those, um, again, when the train's in place, they kind of know, okay, I'm standing through the flush on a sharp tail it's kind of a cue for them, right? A cue for them to, okay, the, the rules apply. This Correct. is a game bird. We're going to hunt. Okay. Wow. Um, okay. Can, I want to ask you guys about, um, again, I guess pen raised birds versus wild birds. It, is there, like, just talk about the pros cons and kind of the, um, what, what those birds play into the development of a bird dog. Well, obviously, as we're developing our bird dogs, we're we're working dogs on solely pen raised birds. Mm-hmm. You know, we we need dependable, good flying quails. What we use. Um, so for the early stages, well, I'll back it up. Even you know, at first, we start our training format with pigeons because pigeons are even more dependable than a pen raised bird. So we want those pigeons to get get out of there quickly and fly away so we can steady our dogs up and not have them land say 20 feet beyond where they got up we want them out of the out of the field at that point so once the dogs are steady on pigeons then we transition to pin raised quail and it's critical that you have good pin raised quail the the proficiency of the dogs in training is directly correlated to how strong and how wild your pin raised birds are Mm. Those birds that that get up, they flush, and then they just drop back down and, and land. Um, it is very difficult to get good, clean bird work on that type of a bird. So good, strong, pin-raised birds are critical. And that that's that's a, a dicey situation. It's, it's hard to keep good, strong, flying birds all the time. Um, but if you have good birds, then you can, you can guarantee those dogs bird contact which again lends itself to that mindset. They expect to find birds every time they get turned loose. So that focus is there. The downside I think to, uh, to wild birds is um, you can't always depend on them. You can't, 
And that's what we ran into um, in Montana too. When we were up there in the tough years, you can't guarantee that you're going to get any bird contact when you need to with those young dogs. Um, and even if you do, it may be that um, there's not a good solid point. You know, the dog may just catch a little whiff and that wild bird is up and out of there and you really don't get to, to work on the manners that you're really trying to work on. You have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think once, once you have a dog that's trained um, and, and has a good understanding of, of what's expected of him in the field, um, I think that you can, that, that a wild bird uh, is more forgiving than a pin bird. I think that you can manipulate that dog more so on a wild bird than you can a pin mm -hmm. bird. For whatever reason, dog um, has the ability to between a pin bird or a wild bird. And I'm talking quail now. Um, I mean, they can, they can tell the difference between a dead bird and a live bird. I mean, they're, they're an amazing animal. Um, so, um, you know, to be able to have, and like Sue said, I think you've got to have pin raised birds initially to get the mindset. Yeah. If, if you just turn a dog loose to go wild bird hunt, um, you're not going to find many birds. You're mm -hmm. just not. So, so get them focused on, on your pin birds. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, there are some dogs that can stay focused year round and they're kind of hard to live with, you know, in the house. I mean, they're always looking out the window and, and, but that dog's always in shape mentally and physically in those dogs that, that sometimes can make a really great house dog. They fall out of focus and fall out of physical condition. So that, that dog, um, it would certainly pay dividends to go to your, your local preserve and, and work some birds before you go on that driving halfway across the country for wild birds to have success. Yeah. Is there, is there ever, uh, uh, I guess a, a fear of if a dog gets on too many pen raised birds, like, does it become, does it become too easy for them at any point where maybe they're picking up on the scent where you plant the bird or, um, you know, that aspect versus wild birds, like what are wild birds going to be more of a challenge for that dog? Cause, cause are these dogs going to figure out the game quicker with planted birds? Yeah. You know, the, it's like Susanna said, um, for, for a professional trainer, the, the quality of pin raised bird that we have directly determines the quality of dog that we send home. Mm. If we have birds that, um, that if a dog crowds, they'll get up and fly out of, out of sight. Um, and that's very similar to the wild bird. Uh, those dogs will be, um, have great intensity, uh, be, be very crisp and proficient in their training. If we have dog, those birds that, that, um, that sit and allow a dog to, to creep in, or flutter out there 30 feet, then you're always guarding against that dog creeping in or catching that bird. And, and that affects the dog. I mean, every correction that you make, you take a little intensity out of it. Um, so there's a huge difference between wild birds and pin birds. And there's also equally a huge difference between great pin birds and, and 
not not so great. I think fall pen raised birds are um, easier to have great birds. You know, spring birds. If you're not, most of us have carryover birds, uh, and then if you're too late in season, they start laying eggs and molting and. Or if you turn them loose from your Johnny houses, they pair off and don't come back. I mean, it, it gets very difficult. So I think the ideal model is always the wild birds. I think everything you do with a pin raised bird, you're trying to create a scenario that is as similar to a wild game experience as possible. Hmm. So, um, you know, the, the good flying birds, that's critical. Even when you're playing, you mentioned um, following your tracks. Absolutely. Dogs pick up on the little things like that. They'll follow the tracks on a four-wheeler. So you have to, as you're training your dog, you have to keep that in mind that you're trying to basically replicate a wild bird encounter for your dog. Um, I know we have a lot of people that well, it's hard for everybody when you plant a bird, it's hard to remember where you planted it. I mean, we just, everybody struggles with it. So I know um, it's very common for people to tie um, engineer's tape or something to a bush nearby or, or the grass right there. Um, and, and we get, you know, humans, we get lazy and we, we may drive the, the four wheeler just right there where we plant the birds. Even those little things like that, dogs pick up on almost immediately. So you have to be aware of those little nuances and try, try to create that ultimate experience for the dog when you're planning. Mm, that's great. Okay. Um, I'd love to get into, I mean, we're kind of talking about, you know, a little bit of training already, but we'd love to dive into a little bit more training stuff as well with you guys I have a couple questions I uh, would love to ask you. Um, but before we dive in um, any further, can you guys just give us um, a lot of people out there may have heard of the Smith method or the Smith training. Can you guys just give an overview of, of when someone hears that, like, like what is the Smith method? Just want to take a quick moment and thank each of our sponsors, B Pro Kennels, Final Rise, and Trinity Bretons. Now, Trinity Bretons has been a sponsor of this podcast for quite a while now. Uh, there's some great people to work with and putting out some great dogs uh, that are just killing it in the field trial world. Uh, Final Rise, uh, putting out the premium upland hunting gear um, made here in the USA. And uh, I also did a review of the new Sidekick Vest over on the, my YouTube channel, the Upland Rookie Podcast. So check that out. Uh, full review of the, up, or of the uh, Final Rise Sidekick. And then B Pro Kennels, uh, again, making products here in the USA. Uh, ben Proctor over there putting out some great custom-made quality dog boxes. So check them out. Sure. So um, my, my definition of the Smith method or what I think of it is, is that every, it, it is a system. It is a complete system. Um, and, and what I mean by that is everything that we do with the dog is for a reason. It's a progression. Um, basically we're building two points of contact on a dog, one on the neck, for movement commands, for healing, quartering, and coming to you. And one on the flank for having a dog stand still. We From that, we can build, whoa, honoring, uh, and steadying a dog up. So it's a, it's a very, very structured uh, step system of training. That's why we, we call or we designate each month. Uh, the first month is foundation. 
The second month is intermediate level. That's the steadying up process. And the third month is, is advanced. And that's where we're, we're moving the transitioning, those points of contact to one spot on the neck um, and uh, uh, trying to simulate a, a hunting scenario. Um, so there there's 90 days and 30 seconds. You <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. And I think one thing that, that is really unique um, and, and beneficial to the dogs in this format is that we start with the most controlled environment possible. And then we just take baby steps, building that association as we go through the process and everything is designed to set the individual dogs up for success. You know, um, we have a, have a very basic curriculum, but every workout is different. So every workout is designed for that dog and not just for that dog, but for that dog in that moment. So everything we're doing is constantly adjusting for how the dog is reacting, how the dog is behaving that day. So it's very individualized, even though it's a, it's a, a pretty, um, set curriculum, if you will. There's a lot of nuances that go into it for the individual. So it works with any dog. You know, we train, we feel the pressure, you know, we have dogs that are going home at the end of our course and, and uh, Susanna and I self-induce a lot of pressure. It's just, <laughs> it's just who we are. I mean, we want it to be perfect. We, we want to show those, these, these clients why they've been paying us to work their dog. And sometimes it's perfect and sometimes it's not. Um, but, uh, I have completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be really good. <laughs> oh man. It was a good one. I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'll come back to me and it won't mean anything. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> this may be where you're going. I don't know, but you're talking about imperfection. You know, um, it doesn't matter if you're a pro or you're an amateur, or if this is the first dog you've ever trained, there's going to be great training days and there's going to be some not so great training days. So there's going to be peaks and valleys, even for the dogs, even if all the training is presented, right. Mm. You know, the, the animals are going to have different emotions each day. You know, they're, they're not completely separated. The workouts aren't completely separated from everything else that's going on in that dog's life. The tw last 24 hours, you know, they're still impacted by things going on around them. And you may take a dog out for a workout one day and they're just, they're not in a good place mentally. But I think that's the beauty of this training format is it allows you to work with those peaks and those valleys, those good days and those not so good days and progressively get better and better and better. And just like Ronnie said, you know, very <laughs> dogs aren't perfect. Humans aren't perfect, but we all have that goal of pure perfection for both of us. And we're all striving towards that. That's, that's very I remember. <laughs> I, I remember. All right, we're coming back. We're going so, back. Where I was going with that is that, you know, at the, at the end, we want the dogs to be perfect. And, and again, they're, they're, they're not always perfect, but during training, um, we, we pay more attention to the dog's mindset than, than we do the, the function in the field. You know, if, 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 if we're having a hard time getting a dog to be honest on his game, you know, to get him steadied up, um, we're, we're, 
we're really watching his mind and figuring out why are we having this problem? Do we not have his attention? Is his prey drive? Does he have more heart than sense? You know, is his prey drive off the charts? I mean, why won't he steady up? What is it that we're not conveying? So the mind is the most important thing. And, and we feel that if you, if you pay attention to the mind of the dog, then the rest will come mm-hmm. to play. Okay. So along those lines, um, like, like, I guess talk about like, how, how are you reading a dog? How are you reading their body language to know if they're not having a great, you know, they're, they're distracted or their mind's not in the right, right spot. Like talk a little bit about that as, as again, body language, like, yeah, I guess just expand on like how you're reading those dogs and know what kind of day they're having. We need a string of dogs to show you because that's such a visual thing. But, <laughs> um, you know, for us, as soon as we put our hands on a dog first thing in the morning, that's our initial kind of our, our baseline read for where that dog is. So if we go to that dog in the kennel or the crate or wherever and um, say they're they're bouncing around, they're jumping all over us, they're they're um, not listening to any of the cues that we give them. So that tells us that we need to take a step back and we need to implement a little more of that composure. We need to build um, a little bit more of a calm mindset with them. If, um, if we go to a kennel and the dog is reticent to come to us, then we know from the get go, okay, this dog is, is feeling timid or reticent, fearful, whatever. Um, so we need to build that dog up throughout the workout. And that's something that we've had to deal with a lot mm. in the, the last few years with COVID mm. you know, we've had dogs come in. And for the first three weeks, we couldn't get our hands on them with that dog being receptive. You know, we walk into the kennel and they're barking defensively because mm-hmm. they're, we're a stranger and they've never had to deal with strangers. And, mm-hmm. and so you have to jump that hurdle. So those little things, they set the tone for your whole workout. Um, you know, we're always watching the head because wherever an animal is looking is where their mind is and where their body will be. Mm-hmm. So if they look down, um, and maybe they're smelling a scent. Well, they're going to follow that scent off. So those little things like that kind of, um, give you tools to know how to, to cue the dog, to get them back where you want them mentally. Um, if a dog is, is his head's moving a lot, you know, he's like a kid playing a video game, looking for something to watch all the time. Then that's another indicator. Um, you need to cue him to settle that mind down, slow that mind down so that he can process what's going on around him instead of just reacting. And we get a lot of reactive dogs in for training. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do with all that. Um, and, and typically you see a reactive dog, um, their, their tail is going to be going a million miles an hour. Their head's going a million miles an hour. They're tense. If you put your hand on their shoulders, they may jump because they weren't even aware you were there. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of off in their own little world looking for something to do and not paying attention to what's going on at hand. And, and they don't, they react more than think. So we try to work to slow those minds down where they can be more aware of their surroundings and what's going on and react, make better decisions. We want them to make good decisions. Um, what are some other behaviors that you can think of off the top of your head that we deal with a lot? Yeah. You know, I think um, it, you know, and, and just, well, I guess what, what I was thinking about as you were talking, you know, even though we have this relationship with these dogs, as soon as the owner shows up, the dog is the mm-hmm. exact same dog that he was 90 days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is amazing. So, um, 
That's why we have to have owners come in and spend time with us. Uh, we, we have owners say, will he forget me? And my answer is no, that's the problem. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's where the problem would, starts. Yeah, that's right. If your dog would forget you, we would train it and fly it to you. And life is good. <laughs> All the bad habits we, we teach them. <laughs> right. That I mean, immediately they come back. So we have to spend time with that owner to, to make the transition from us back to them. Um, is, is that think, probably the hardest part for you guys sometimes is really training the owners versus the dogs? I don't know about training the owners, but, um, every, every transition that we go through is unexpected because we don't know what behavior to expect from the dog. We know what they've done with us for the past three months, but we don't know what they've done with the owner prior to that. So I don't know how many times we'll be going through the, the process of the showings and all of a sudden this, this completely foreign behavior pops up with this dog. We're like, where in the world did that come from? And, and, you know, typically at some point the owner's like, Oh yeah, he used to do that when he was a puppy or, 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 you know, yeah, we do this at home. Like, Oh, okay. Then it makes sense. But that I think is the challenging thing for us with the showing, because you don't know what unexpected behavior is going to pop up. And every dog that we sent home from this last class, we had about 30 dogs in this last class. And I, I checked them off the list as we went through every dog that we sent home showed some unexpected behavior that was routine with their owner, but not routine with us. So it's a challenge and it, it threw us off because it, it just wasn't normal for what we see with them. So wow. that's, that's uh, probably the biggest challenge with the homes, I think. Yeah. What are, I guess, what are some of the, the biggest, um, Maybe, maybe biggest mistakes owners make that you see the things that maybe the dog comes in and there's just a habit or something that, that you see new handlers, new owners of dogs. Like, I guess what's the most common mistake you see people make? I think the most common mistake, and I know you're going to have a different on this, but I think the most common mistake that we see is and it, it's human nature, but people tend to judge what an animal does by human standards and not by canine standards. Mm. So, um, a lot of, a lot of the animal behavior is, is misinterpreted. Um, and, and it makes a lot of it snowballs into making that animal hard to live with. Mm. So I think that's the biggest, the biggest mistake is not understanding the animal. Can you give me an example of, of what you've seen with that? Um, yeah. Um, very often I think people misinterpret dominance as love. You know, if a dog comes up and pushes on you as human, we tend to think, Oh, he's rubbing on me. He wants my attention. And he's such a sweetie, but in the dog's world, he's coming in and pushing on you for a reason. You know, he's trying to elicit some behavior and control the situation. Um, and I, I think that's the most common. That makes yeah. sense. You know, even jumping up on you, well, yeah. we, we, uh, we had a couple's weekend this last weekend and, and, uh, one of the, the attendees was talking about her dog doing that. And, uh, she had a realization that that was not what she thought it was, you know, because he did it to me, he did it to Susanna and that, and I looked at her and said, he doesn't love me. You know, he doesn't know <laughs> me. So this is, you know, so again, trying to, if you could communicate with your dog um, without saying a word, then maybe you can learn to see things on a dog's 
perspective. Well, and I tell you, referring to that, that, uh, events deal that we had the lady that Ronnie was talking about. It was so inspiring to watch as soon as she was given the tools to, to read her dog's behavior and understand, I mean, she was enlightened and she, she started having fun with her dog and we all had fun watching the transformation. The dog's like, Oh, okay. I will listen to you <laughs> wow. complete change in the relationship. And it was healthier and and everybody could see how much healthier it was. And it was, it was exciting. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah. It was, wow. it was the highlight. <laughs> that, that does sound like a highlight. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, all right. A couple uh, training questions here and you guys can expand as much, as much as you, you want, but um, can you guys talk about the, the importance of kind of the um, getting the groundwork, right. And kind of what I'm thinking about is let's talk about the, the breaking process. Um, would, would love you to talk about the breaking process and the woe post a little bit more in depth, but can you talk about the groundwork and kind of laying that foundation for the dog, um, as kind of a, a starting point? I'll jump in here because in, in the way I see it, the groundwork is everything. The fundamentals are, are critical for a dog's success in, in any environment. So, and I'll go back to the three behaviors that we teach a dog. And, and really, if you think about it, Almost everything that we do with a dog can be tied into the three behaviors that we preach. And that's go with you, stand still, come to you. Mm -hmm. So um, if you can have your dog do those three things in any environment, then they're going to be doing it in the bird field. And that's one thing that we have really started to focus on. Um, you know, if there's a problem, you always step back to the fundamentals. You never address the problem at the point that it showed up. You always go back in training a step and, and work with the fundamentals. It's like the story of the, uh, the check courting with Delmar. Um, you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. You know, when I was, I was in my, my early twenties and I knew everything, um, there was, a, a, a an older dog that we had. He was, he was an old dog for us, an eight year old dog. When you're, you're guiding, um, commercially is it's an old dog. And this dog was that he was eight or nine and, um, had hunted at that time, had hunted more quail than I had been around, you know, just, a, just an old soul. And, um, I had commented on that hunt that morning, how we hunt Cinderas, uh, in South Texas or, or roads. And he was not quartering both sides of the road. He was hunting one side. Um, and, and I was not able to get him back across and it was a tip clubbing. Now my uncle told me, he said, well, let's, let's put a check cord on him and, and quarter him. And that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. You know, that was a, a nine year old dog and we're going to put a check cord on him. And, <laughs> he hadn't had a check cord on him in eight years. Yeah, if I do it now. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I didn't have a say so in the matter. I had to do you it. You were doing and the I'm check cord. Up. Yeah. Yeah. I was puffed up and had a bad attitude and, and, uh, and I did it. And, you know, after honestly, I don't remember how long it was, but I'm going to say 50 yards. It, it was nothing. He said, okay, now drop the rope. And I did. And, and that dog went out there and stitched the scene. I mean, back and forth, uh, quartering that, that road, both sides. And, and it taught me, um, I can admit it now, but it, it taught me at a very young age, the importance of a foundation. Mm. And, uh, and, and that's really, really our, our focus because with a good foundation, um, 
you can reference it at any time in that dog's life and clear something up, straighten up some behavior on the fly, on the hunt, and no one will ever know you did anything. Mm. You know, talking about mistakes that people make, I'll go to the field, and I know Sue's probably knew where I was going to go with this, but I think I think some of the some of the things that I see are shooting, shooting to see if a dog shooting a gun to see if a dog's gun shy. Well, he is now, you know, um, there, there's a better way to do that. So, so don't just take a dog out there and shoot it in the air to see how it reacts. Uh, if you did that to me, it would scare me. I would recover because I would look around and see what's going on, but a, a dog might not. Um, two, don't, don't teach woe on game. Mm. Don't, don't teach woe around game. That's how you get pressure-induced behavior. Mm. You teach woe away from game so that you can enforce woe around game. Mm. Don't, don't teach here on retrieving. You know, that, that retrieving, uh, a, a natural retriever, uh, is, is a, a very possessive mindset. The only reason that dog goes out there is because he wants to possess whatever it is he went after. Okay. And now you start shouting verbiage at him. He's got something that you want that he wants, right? And now you're hollering here, here, here. And if he doesn't, the inflection goes up. And if he's been around you any at all, his perception of pressure goes up. And he'll spit it out and go on. He may come halfway, spit it out. He may chew on it. There's all kinds of things that can happen. So, so don't try to teach commands around what it is that that command should be used for. Teach it away so that you can enforce it when you're there. Yeah, work on those fundamentals and then move forward and apply them in those other areas. And it'll be more successful. So, so you're spending quite a bit of time on the groundwork, right? Before you will reintroduce birds, right? Yeah. So our, our first month of training, it's called the foundation month. Basically, it's all done with a rope. So that's when we're really introducing those concepts and teaching um, dogs those, those very basic behaviors and getting a lot of repetition in, in that super controlled environment where they're on a rope and, and we can, we can, it may take a little bit of time, but we can work with them and get success every time, every workout, they're going to have success. So we're starting to build that behavior a little bit. So, yeah, we do a lot of rope work and that's why Ronnie and I, when we get up in the morning, it's, Oh, my back. <laughs> <laughs> the groundwork is key. Right. And when you're training dogs, when you're teaching a concept, it should have a better understanding that dog should have a better understanding each workout. If not, you're, you're not getting proper association. And then once your dog has the concept, then you work to proficiency or consistency. Mm -hmm. So once you see consistency, then you'll move on to the next step, right? Right. So you're teaching a concept and understanding and once they have an understanding, you train for the consistency. Mm. And that's right. Then you build off of that. That's part of your foundation. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. 
Um, all right. Can you, can you give us an overview of the woe post? And when, when you have an older dog now that you are going to, you know, break to say wing shot and fall or, or whatever it is, can you get, I guess, give an overview of, of, um, what, what that would look like when you're training a dog? So again, I'll go back to everything that we do. We start in the most controlled environment possible so that we can guarantee that dog's success. So the woe post, um, Essentially what it is, we've got a stake in the ground with a soft, big, fat rope snapped to it. Um, and we will loop that rope around the dog's flank and then snap that the end of that rope into their collar. And then we've got a check cord that we're um, working on the other side. So basically we've got the dog um, where, where we can, we can set them up for success to be still. And all we're doing really is teaching the dog to stand still when feeling a physical cue. So mm. in you know most animal training, it's, it's all based on cue and release. Dogs learn on the release. So we cue that dog with that physical cue on the flank and they stand still. Um, the beauty of the woe post, and I'm sure Ronnie will go into it in even more detail, but the beauty of the woe post is that we can clean up a lot of other um, physical behaviors and mental um, issues there on the woe post because typically the woe post is the first time a lot of these dogs have to stand alone by themselves and work through a, a cognitive puzzle. Mm. They have to figure out what's being asked of them. Um, so it's a real challenge for them initially because um, you know, we're not standing beside them. We're, we're giving them nothing. The, the rope is giving them nothing. They've felt a cue and they have to work through, okay, what does this mean? Mm. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, kind of default behavior that they've learned during their course of their lives up to that point that have worked, say, um, some dogs, you know, maybe they're passive aggressive. Maybe they lay over on their back whenever, um, they get told they can't be on the couch or not to chase the cat. Um, that becomes a default behavior that they use. Some dogs um, are taught to sit and they have that as a default behavior where particularly in moments of excitement, they sit. So maybe they sit before they, they have food. Maybe they sit uh, before they go outside. They sit before they get attention. They sit before they go and talk to the kids because you know, that's the only way a lot of people can get the animal to be calm. Well, um, all those are, are moments of excitement and what we see with those dogs with default, a really strong default to sit is we'll see it in the field that that um, behavior will come up in the field. So the woe post gives us the opportunity to reshape some of that. Um, I'll go into that. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Real quick before you jump in, Ronnie, and this could be for either of you. So um, just to back up maybe one step. So once the dog's on a woe post, have they, is that their very first interaction to the flank? That's question number one. And two, is there any work prior to the woe post that you do with the wonder lead or standing still, or is, is the woe post the first thing um, teaching them to stand still? So um, ideally, yes, they've had a lot of work leading up to that. Um, you know, like for our dogs, we've gone through a lot of, we call it a, the challenge course, um, but it's just, just a, a, an agility course where we're teaching them to listen to cues. So we get a lot of the, the cognitive reasoning skills um, 
developed then. So they're, they're looking for cues. They're thinking about cues. They're composed. They can stand still. Um, but that takes, that takes time. That's really what should be happening during that first year of that dog's development. Um, so yes, a lot of the dogs that are started in their formal training, they don't have much of that yet. So they're kind of jumping in both feet first and, and figuring it out. But because it's such a controlled environment, they're always successful. Right, right. You know, and, and, and I'm, Susanna really covered it, it very well. But I, I think what the Will Post does, again, you're working in a super controlled environment. And the, um, the, the being in a controlled environment, you're able to make happen what you want to happen exactly when you want it to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So you get good association, but even more than that, you're, you're teaching a dog to just stand still in a super controlled environment. You know, they can't, they can't sit or you pull them up. They can't lay down or you pull them up. They can't go away or you stop them with the check cord. They, there's no lateral movement. So they've got to just stand still, mm -hmm. just stand still. And there is a cognitive process that goes on um, that you take that, 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 that introverted or that passive aggressive dog and the, these things in their portfolio that have worked before don't, I mean, mm -hmm. you have to just stand still. Um, they, they really learn how to problem solve and associate and get on their feet. Uh, it is, in, in my opinion, it is, um, uh, it, it is the, the greatest thing. And, and we've changed over the years. Um, we're not well posting as long as we, we did 10 years ago. Um, I think our approach is softer mm -hmm. than it used to be. Uh, but I, uh, I don't foresee um, us ever not doing the wool post because it, it pays such dividends, um, to that dog. And to go back to your question earlier, I didn't really flesh that out very well. You were asking about if they had, um, had any prep work done before they see the wool post. Um, and that's one of the things that that's built into the wool post. We have basically an introductory stage of the wool post where we just get them comfortable with the whole scenario. We want them comfortable with a rope suddenly being around their flank. They've never experienced it before. We're not going to ask them to go um, feel that and perform at a high level immediately. We want them to get comfortable with it. Again, it's part of the mindset. They have to be um, confident and composed and compl in order to be compliant. Yeah. They have to accept it in order to be able to learn. So we do have this, this introductory stage built into the post. And, and after they accept it, it's just like um, kind of like stacking out a horse before you put a saddle on a horse and get on a horse, you get them used to the equipment. You get them used to accepting that scenario. Is, so is there the ever theory? Oh, so sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. It, well, is there ever a neck cue before the woe post to stand still or is it is the woe post and the flank the first cue to stand still? So... The woe post and the flank is the first cue to stand still. And there's a, there's a reason for that. One, um, if you cue a dog on the neck, you don't have control of their full body. So you might ask them to stop and they, their hind end moves four or five in, feet to the, or the steps um, one way or the other. You don't, so you're teaching, well, woe kind of means kind of sort of slow down. It's not, woe means stop. Um, and two, one of the reasons that we keep using the woe post 
is because of clarity. We're developing a new point of contact, you know, puppies from the get-go, they're pulled around by a collar on the neck. Sometimes it means something, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it means it comes to you. Sometimes it just means somebody accidentally stepped on the lead, you know? So there, there, it, that's a muddier concept for those dogs. So we start with a clean point of contact that doesn't mean anything to them. And from, from that point through the rest of their life, a cue on the flank simply means stand still. And we keep it very black and white. So on the low post, we, we cue the dog with that rope around the flank and they stand still and we let them go through that mental process. And we wait for acknowledgement, we wait for that dog basically to say, okay, I, I think I kind of get this, which is usually a yawn, a lick, a swallow. Um, and then we go to them and we take them off the woe post and still having them st remain standing still. We don't allow them to take a step. So black and white, we cue them to stand still. We go, we take the woe post rope off. If they have an infraction, we, we cue them with that check cord to remain standing. And then we have a release where we, we touch them on the head so that they know exactly the point when they're asked to stand perfectly still and the point where they can forge ahead and, and go, go run. So the more black and white it is, the more controlled of an environment you start with and the more black and white the cue is, the, the cleaner it is for the dog. And that's what we see with the woe post is it just sets them up for success every step of the way. There's a cue release and they wait for the, the release to move forward. Yeah. And so it, it's very um, concise for them. And, and will birds be introduced on the woe posts? So once they've kind of made the progression, they are standing still. When will you introduce a bird to them? So the woe post is just about developing a cue to stand still. And like I said, I touched on earlier, there's, there's a lot of other byproducts that are great benefits. There's a lot of other things that you can clean up on the woe post, which is part of the beauty of it. But um, we just want the dogs to learn to stand still when cued. And then we'll transition to super low levels on the e-collar where a continuous cue on the e-collar, just like brakes on a car, means to stand still. And we'll go through a couple of weeks of just practicing that, just making sure they're comfortable with it. Um, what we look for when we're stopping a dog is nobody be to be able to tell that you told that dog to stop. It's a, a Morse code between you and the dog. You've developed this language and somebody watching from the outside, it just looks like that dog to say, made the decision to stand still or to stop what it was doing. So we, we practice and practice and practice until the dog doesn't even have to think about it. When he feels that cue, it's just automatic. He just stops. And then we're able to increase the level of distraction by going to the bird field and introducing the concept of stopping the chase. And again, we take baby steps there. We don't just go out. Okay. We can stop our dog. Now we're going to stop him as soon as he catches scent. We don't, we don't make that leap. We take baby steps. Well, and to bring birds into the woe post equation, it's like teaching warning, mm -hmm. you know, teach, teach woe away from games so that you can enforce it around game. Get it perfect first yeah. and increase the instruction. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, last training question. You guys are so good. <laughs> My mind is like spinning right now. <laughs> Um, last training question as we start to wrap this thing up, um, and then just have a couple of listener questions, uh, that, that, uh, would love to run by you. Um, so creeping when, when a dog, you have, you have a dog that's sent to you and, you know, they catch a little bit of scent, they, they stop, they creep, they stop, they creep. What, how would you address, uh, creeping, uh, with a, with a dog? Uh, 
pretty broad question. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I know. I know. Here, yeah, here stopping. So there. <laughs> well, so here's here's uh here here in, in this might again might not be a definitive answer, but um our concept our, the, on on setting a dog up is the the traditional way to steady a dog up is you have a means of of making him stop right you bring him into scent when he detects scent when he makes gain you enforce him standing still our our uh, our philosophy is different uh, and it's been different for i don't know 20 some years um and for val- very valid reasons um our 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 concept is we're we're taking the chase, right? So there's every predator chases game. I'm I'm sorry. Every predator stalks game because when they chased it, they couldn't catch it. So birds of prey, you know, they they soar and hunt, or they're sitting on a on a perch and hunting. Um, lions. Uh, wolves, you you name it. Every predator stalks game before the pursuit, and that's the same with the bird dog. That we call it a point, but it's a stalk, right? Um, I've lost my train of thought again. Stopping the chase. Stopping the chase. Thank you so much. There we go. Good my job. Mind, those are those rabbit trails. You know, as I'm talking, there, there are things. I mean, it's like choo choo yeah, choo. Oh, all I'm kinds sure. Of I'm sure. So, so the chase has become an, in, important to us in that um, what we do is we, we have a means of, of stopping that dog, and that's the collar on the flank, and we bring that dog into game, and this is where the pigeons really uh, come into play because we can flush a pigeon in a launcher, and, and he's gone. I mean, he flies off the premise, and it helps us to steady that dog up. Um, so we, we take the chase, you know, the, even the wing drill that you use with a little puppy, you know, you, you, you put a wing on a fishing line and you flip it out there and he goes over and investigates and you flip it off to the right and he chases and he chases and he chases and he chases and finally he points it. It has nothing to do with the wing. It could be a white piece of paper. It's all visual. It's all prey chase, right? But because he can't catch it, he then points it or stalks it. So we do the same thing. So on that, when we're going through that steadying up process on those dogs that creep in, we let them creep in and we try to keep it as real as possible, just like a wild bird. When that dog creeps into a certain distance, we flush that bird. And when that dog chases, we then stop him. And what we see is incrementally, bird after bird after bird, that dog starts to steady up. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that, that creep goes away. Now, if it doesn't, then chase first and creep second. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, is as we're steadying this dog up, if he's creeping in, the bird gets up and he stops and stands there and watches it fly off then we start stopping the creep. So by, by stopping the chase initially, we really develop a, an honest mindset with that dog where they tend to be very, very steady. So typically we don't have much issue with creep and, and that that's addressing that in a very, I mean, that that's one scenario a dog sure. might be creeping in. There's other sure. reasons a dog might be creeping. But that's addressing one scenario. That- yeah. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to elaborate just a bit if you don't mind. And yeah, please. The reason, 
changed our whole training format is because again, over 20 years ago, and, and as the listeners listen to this, this will resonate with some of you. We started to receive dog that um, as we steadied up, um, they were broke, they were steady, but their tails were wagging, mm-hmm. right? And I was raised that if you have a dog that's flagging on point, it's pressure-induced behavior. And we, we knew that that was not the case. We, we knew that that wasn't. And we were seeing it at that time, you know, 20-some years ago. We were seeing it in, in about 10% of the dogs. Wow. As time has progressed, that number is larger. Um, we're, we're seeing it in quite a few dogs now. Um, and, and all it is is that you have this, this domesticated predator, right, that's living in an urban environment, which is a short grass sterile visual environment so this this predator that's living in your home or your backyard he is hunting whatever it is that he can it's that squirrel running the power feed in, in the alley it's the bird at the feeder or the water mm. but it's all visual right so when you would steady those dogs up again physically we had their body standing still pointing but the mind just wanted to see it And that's why the tails are flagging. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why we've, we have gone from taking the chase out of their mind rather than physically. If that dog wants to come in and flush a bird, we let him flush it. And if it takes 500 to stop the chase, to take the chase out of his mind, to get the intensity on point, then that's what it does. And we have, I don't know, I bet we have a 90% success rate at cleaning those dogs up. Now here's the downside. When they go back home, they go back to the very environment that created it. So it can come back. So, so you're saying allowing them to chase is you're kind of saying it's getting that out of their getting it out of their mind, which then is going to stop the tail, hopefully, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. The mind, the tail is hardwired to a dog's mind. You watch his head, you watch his tail, you'll know all you need to know about that dog. So you'll let them chase, get that out of their system and figure out, okay, I'm never going to catch that bird when I chase it. My job is... We're not allowing them to chase. So, So when we talk about stopping the chase... Um, initially when the bird gets up and the dog chases it, we'll let them follow that bird for a little while and then just slowly stop them with the e-collar. On the flank. It's not immediate. We, we allow them a little bit of process and, okay. and slowly through the training format, that link that we allow them to chase is, is backed up to where um, it's almost non-existent. And it gets mm. to a point where the bird gets up and the dog stands on his own intensely. Because mm. that chase has been shorter every time he's gone through that until finally, naturally, he stands on his own. He makes the decision to stand on his own. Wow. Um, and then back to the, the creeping uh, aspect you were talking about a second ago, is that, is that dog kind of learning? So they, so they say they point, but then they take a step or two or a step. And then that, that bird flushes. The dog is learning that, oh, by that step or by that creep, I cause that bird to flush. Right. And, and then the, the game's over. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and, and two, so here, so if your dog is, is a dog that goes on the flush and that creep is liable to never write itself, you know, 
he comes in, he push, he crowds the game, it gets up, he lays his ears back and chases it. Um, so for that dog uh, to steady them up to a higher degree uh, will will pay benefit. Now, here's a curve, right? So um, there are some scenarios that uh, it is advantageous for a dog to creep. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's, <laughs> it's the truth. You heard it here um, first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so there has to be cover for a bird to run through the leaf scent for a dog to detect, right? Susanna is from West Texas, um, way out there. And it's, it's tough country. Um, and there's not a lot of cover on some years more than others, but year in, year out, basically it's, it's pretty tough country. And what we saw out there, um, and, you know, even in, in Arizona, uh, uh, New Mexico, there are areas that almost desert birds, if, if the dog can't smell, you know, if you have a dog that comes in and they run off and leave him, and then when you relocate, he can't pick them up again mm. because there wasn't enough cover to leave scent. Uh. You, you lose that 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 cubby yeah. so there are some situations where that dog might need to kind of stay with the cubby a little bit just to, to maintain contact yeah. location that's a great point that's a great point um okay guys we're gonna wrap start wrapping this thing up i just have a couple listener questions a couple of these you've already answered so um we'll kind of breeze through a couple of them but uh alec writes in biggest difference between your pointers and your brits one has a tail and the other doesn't. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, no I, 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 you know, I think so for us guiding hunts in South Texas, like we did for so long, a pointer, that's pointer country. I mean, it, it just is. You've got a short tail or short haired dog that, that, um, uh, is is a, a dog that can mitigate the the stresses of heat. Mm. Um, you have a dog that that um, uh, in some situations, and a lot of our dogs pointers were that way. You know, maybe maybe had a little more more desire than mm. than sense, yes. right? You know, so they were warriors. I mean, they were soldiers. They uh, they they could they uh, that, that I guess that's the best way to, to describe it, and that's what it took to to hunt in that environment on a commercial operation where you want to talk about the, the Brittany suit. So, yeah, we've always used our, our pointers and our Brittany's in the same environment. Um, and to me, the difference is that the pointers don't have to be uh, trimmed or shaved. The Brittany's do, you know, we'd, <laughs> we would take Brittany's from, from our place to uh, say North Texas and um, at our place, you know, they'd be performing, hanging with the pointers, doing exactly what the pointers would do. But as we migrated south, we'd go to North Texas at the Four Sixes Ranch, and you'd realize that, oh, that Brittany's kind of missing a step. He's not as good as he was mm. in, in Oklahoma. And then you go further south, go to deep south Texas, you're like, wow, we're not going to be able to get much done with this dog. And you shave them, and, and boy, they're really? right back to what they were before. So I think a little bit of maintenance is probably the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. wow. That's good to know. Uh, yeah. I always wondered if, if shaving them actually had any kind of effect on them or not, but that's interesting. Not yeah. Definitely. That's cool. I just, I just shaved my, uh, my male a couple weeks ago and he looks like a little bald rat, but 
<laughs> Someone called me. Yeah, <laughs> it looks good. Um, okay, there's uh, one or two more here. Uh, Ken writes in, when do you know or how will you know if your dog is a non-performer? Uh, maybe they don't have what it takes. Nose, drive, lack of point. And I, th- I think he's trying to get at like what, like, okay, you have your amazing dogs and you have your good dogs. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So Ronnie and I always go back to mindset. If a dog is being outperformed by the rest of our string, we go back to what is it about his mental state that's causing this? Mm. You know, is well, first you want to make sure, you know, physically make sure there's nothing physical, but if, if it's mental, what does he need to get his mind back right where he can be as proficient as the other dogs? And sometimes, you know, something simple like, you know, Delmer and, and the pattering going back to the, the check cord. Um, it could be something simple about just going back to a pin raised bird and immersing them in consistent birds where they're, they're focused again and they get productive. And that's what makes it challenging to decide when, when it's time to just say, okay, maybe, maybe he's better suited to something else because maybe he's suited better to something else, or maybe you just haven't had been able to figure out his recipe for success. And that's, um, I think that's probably why Ronnie and I hang on to dogs as long as we do, you know, and, and we'll even have dogs that go through peaks and valleys during the season, you know, the first season they're, Ooh, they're top hand second season. They're a little more unproductive. Like, okay. Mm. Why? So maybe give them a third season. See, okay. Well, just an off season, which we've seen before. We've seen dogs just go through off seasons where things just weren't aligned for them. So that's a mm. tough call. Do you have any insight? Yeah. Just, you know, things, I think things that you can see from a dog that, um, that hamper their performance. Um, and, you know, one is those we 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 try to build a dog that has quick refill or mm. quick mm. Or, or good bounce back from stressful situations and a stressful situation to a dog as people can be different. Right. But you get those dogs that, that are not able to mitigate the stresses of life. Well, so they. um you you throw them in a uh, in a truck or a trailer or a box in the back of the truck, and you drive for two days. Right? Um, they're they're off. Stressed. Right? They're stressed. You jump them out in an unfamiliar area. They're stressed. Maybe they're with your buddy's dogs that they've not been around. They're stressed. Maybe your maybe buddy's you're, handling. Maybe your buddy's a screamer and holler. <laughs> they're stressed. So. We're all stressed then. (laughs) Right. That's right. You know, so they're off their feed. They're not eating in about two. They've lost focus. They're everything is on their mind. Uh, Every all input is, is they're acutely aware of and, and not even thinking about birds two days into it. They're out of groceries. You, now, now your dog is not eating. He, you don't, you don't have a dog. Yeah. But, uh, another might be, you know, going back to what I was, I was talking about those dogs that come in and we want a dog that can walk in the door and turn it off. But one that walks out of the door and gives you 110%. There are those dogs that can walk in and turn it off. But when you walk back out the door, there's, it's still off. Uh, that dog, um, uh, like Susanna said, if you don't keep him in birds, if you just throw him in the truck, then you drive to to this this big excursion, and he's physically out of shape. So you got half a day dog, 
right? Um, and he's certainly not focused. So now you've got a dog kind of putzing around, just putzing around, not thinking. You're, you're not going to find any birds with that dog. Keeping that dog thin, keeping that dog focused will fix that. The first dog I talked about, um, you know, taking him into stressful situations so that he can learn to mitigate it. And don't bend down and, and pet on him and say, it's okay. This is a dog. You're not, you're not talking to a human. You know, be that confident leader. Sure, your dog's feeling what he is. But if he's looking to you for direction, if you're that leader, then if you go through those scenarios, those situations with confidence and and no indecision, you help him get stronger. And in time, he can learn to have bounce back and Mm -hmm. mitigate. So I think the the baseline answer to the question is, is not just look at the performance, but to look at the root of the problem. Why is that dog not being productive? See if you can figure out the why of it and then decide whether or not that's something you can manage and and fix long-term. A lot of it is, is a lifetime commitment with those dogs. You you figure out the root of the problem and you manage it. You help them with that throughout their life so they can be productive. You know, and I think don't, don't think that um, just because you have a bird dog that you have a bird finder. Mm. That's a mistake. We'll see people run, run dogs and like, there's no birds out there. Well, that's, that's not necessarily true. Um, so don't, don't, we, we see dogs run by birds every day. Mm. And these are dogs that are in birds every day. Mm. Is that, is that- is that just their, <laughs> that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Probably. Is that just, they're moving too fast. Is that their nose? Is that yes, 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 all yes, the above? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys are so fun. Um, okay. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, I do mean that. Um, okay. I think you've answered kind of the rest of my, my listener questions there. So we will wrap that up. Um, okay. Every podcast, I always like to ask everyone, uh, for the rookie uplander out there, uh, someone maybe who is heading into their first season, uh, maybe they just picked up their first bird dog. Um, what is some advice that you would give them, uh, heading into their first season? Study your animal, Hmm. learn your animal. Don't assume your animal is, is a person because they live in the house with you. Learn about your animal and they'll tell you what they need. They'll tell you how to keep them successful. And then you can go create some great memories. Yeah. And I think whatever trip it is that you take, um, do a little research before you get there. Um, because that way you're not burning days, learning, learning, you know, you, you can hit the ground running, um, have a good medical kit. Uh, we always traveled with, um, uh, um, is all or fragile because, uh, there many times you'll be out hunting and a dog will drink out of a water hole. And before you get back, he's got diarrhea mm. and that's, that's a terrible thing. You know, it leads to dehydration. So, uh, a staple kit, you know, have, have all of those things that you need, um, do your homework. That's really good. Good advice. All right. Last section is our rapid fire round. And so I'm just going to ask you to a couple, couple questions and just give me your off the cuff answer and, We'll, uh, we'll wrap this thing up. Uh, so Susanna, for you, what came first, the gun, the dog, the bird or hunting? 
The dog. It's always about the dog for me. Yes. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Ronnie, same question for you. Dog. Dog. Okay. I like that. Uh, both of you, what gun are you carrying into the field when you're hunting and why? I'm carrying a, a 28 gauge siren and uh, it's, it's made for a woman. It fits. And I love that. I've got a, I've got a Spanish double that I can't pronounce the names. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the good ones when you can't pronounce them. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Okay. Um, this one might be tough for you guys. I'm not sure. Favorite dog breed besides the ones you've owned. <laughs> this might be really hard for you. Um, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of partial to a draw it as really? long as, not, yeah, as long as they're not too sharp. Um, we've got children and, and small children and they get, if they're pretty sharp, we, we just, we just don't want to fiddle with them, but, but we love them. yeah, I tell you what I like about them is that they're, uh, they don't wear their feelings on their shoulders. You know, they're all business. Mm -hmm. Um, they're, uh, uh, and if there's an apocalypse, that's, that's the dog I'm going to want. You know, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> have you, have you been getting many drafts, uh, in your, in your training? Yeah. Yeah, we get, too. we get everything. Wow. I mean, there, we get dogs that I, I can't even pronounce the name of. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so, all right, well, I, you might be the first, the first guest that have set a draw. So congratulations. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, it's always fun to hear answers. Um, okay. Favorite bird to hunt and why? Ooh, just one, just one. You do one. I'll do the other. Okay. <laughs> oh, tag team, tag team. Look at this. Yeah. And why? And why? Um, I just have such a respect for that bird. They are, they are just, they're uh, amazing. I'm sorry. What, what bird did you say it was? Sharptail grouse. Sharptail. Okay. Yeah. They're an amazing bird. They're, they're great to work dogs on. I don't care if I ever shoot another one. I just want to work with them. They're mm -hmm. a neat bird. Early season sharpies. Yes. Yeah, early season. Awesome. My, uh, I'd have to go with Bob White quail, um, you know, spent my life uh, guiding, guiding hunts on bobs and, and developing dogs. And I don't know, there's something near and dear to my heart with the Bob. That's great. Okay. Uh, last one beverage of choice after a hunt. Water. <laughs> Rehydrate. <laughs> Water. <laughs> There's been a trend in the last several guests. They've been saying water and that's, that's a valid answer. Yes. <laughs> it's a valid answer. Oh, gotta stay hydrated. Uh, well, Suzanne and Ronnie, this has been amazing. Thank you guys so much, um, for spending time and just sharing, um, your wisdom and knowledge and some, some insights with myself and the listeners. Um, I've really, really appreciated this. Well, thank you for having us on. We've enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. You are, you are two fun guests and uh, it's, it's been a blast. How can people, I guess, follow along with you, keep up if they have questions? What's, what's the best way to connect with you guys? Yeah. Um, so our website is RonnieSmithKennels.com. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, uh, Facebook. We've got a pretty active page there. So okay. meet okay. up with us here. Okay. I was going to ask with your training program, is, that, is there a pretty long wait list for that usually? Is that something someone could reach out to you and, and ask about well right now we're booking for next spring 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Sounds good, guys. Well, thank you so much. Um, you guys have a great rest of your week, and uh, thanks again for your time. Thank great. you. Thanks, Will. Well, that's a wrap of episode 54 with Ronnie and Suzanne Smith. Guys, thank you. That's all I can say is thank you so much for uh, carving out an hour and a half of your day uh, to talk with me about uh, dog training, the Smith family history, the training methods, and answer some questions from listeners. So, so appreciate you guys. Uh, I cannot wait to talk with you again. Hey guys, don't forget, if you are enjoying the podcast, uh, the next kind of big goal is getting to 200 reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you could take a minute, uh, go over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. Uh, it would really help the show get out there to more uh, hunters, more bird dog lovers just like you guys. Uh, don't forget, uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as well. Uh, so go over to YouTube, subscribe uh, to the channel. Got a couple videos up over there, including the Tailgate Talk with Jeremy, Episode 3, and a vest review of the new Sidekick vest from Final Rise. So, uh, and again, on Facebook, I'm not sure who uses Facebook anymore, but we're over there. <laughs> so anyways, um, hey, I hope you guys are having a great week. Again, season's coming soon. I hope everyone's doing well. Get your dogs worked and uh, it'll be here before we know it. So anyways, take care. Have a great rest of your week. Oh, go put some miles on those boots and follow your favorite bird dog. Take care. <laughs>